I remember she spoke to me and she said, you're really funny. How long have you been doing it? I said, not long, almost two years. And I told her, it's frustrating because I'm not making any money. I'm going from job to job and my mom really hates this. She wants me to finish college and I don't want to go to college. I want to keep doing comedy. She put her hand on my shoulder and she says, if you love this, you just got to outwork everybody. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I am the producer and host of New York City's longest running comedy variety show, No Name and a Bag of Chips. And this is our podcast. Thank you for tuning in. The voice you heard up front belonged to our good friend, very funny and very talented, Alaudin Yula. He jokingly refers to himself as the artist formerly known as Latin. Alaudin is his given name. That is what he's going by now, but we first met him years ago as a very funny stand-up comic, and since then he's going to do some amazing things, and we're going to talk a lot about that. He's got stuff coming up. Uh, it's a, a solo show that's been receiving productions all over the place called Dishwasher Dreams. He also recently had a new work produced. He's going to be working at the Public Theater, uh, and this fall, as part of DocFest, He's going to have a a documentary that he directed called Bengali Harlem. It's going to be part of that. Uh, And we'll get all down to the conversation with Laudine in a little bit. You know, many of you guys know I have a condition that in the last couple of years I've lost most of my eyesight. During this period I've been receiving training on devices and, you know, various things that can help me navigate the new world I've got. I've been receiving training lately for something called Google Assistant. Google Assistant is designed to help me do various things on my phone, like make phone calls or read my texts. But I have to be honest with you, my my Google Assistant is a fucking idiot. How can I put this? Google Assistant is kind of like that unpaid office intern that you really can't stand, but you can't fire them because it's like the nephew of your boss and the boss only gave the kid the gig because his sister was complaining about the kid fucking up things around the house. We need to get him out of the house. All right, well, give him an unpaid internship. That's kind of what my Google Assistant is like. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, the podcast is still a fairly new thing, and I'm learning on the fly. And, uh, you know, so I listen back to a lot of the episodes. I try to listen, you know, what I think is working, what we need to work on, what needs to improve, and all sorts of stuff. So I really try to absorb this. So I said, hey, Google. And by the way, uh, that's how I, anything that happens, I have to begin by saying, hey, Google, which already gives you an uneasy feeling if you think about it. I mean, like, you know, yeah. hey, Alexa, hey, Siri. Hey, Google. Yeah, hey, Goober. Hey, Sparky. Hey, you know, it just—it doesn't instill confidence is what I'm saying. But say, hey, Google, and you have to pause a moment because Google Assistant is really not all that quick on the uptake. Hey, Google, you pause, and I gave it this command. Hey, Google, play No Name NYC podcast with Carl Fortunato on YouTube. There was another pause because Google Assistant is processing this. And then it says, here's a YouTube playlist called One Hit Wonders of the 70s. Now, I spent seven years at City College and I didn't even get my degree. So I'm not, I'm not a Rhodes Scholar is what I'm saying. But even I know there is no relation between No Name NYC podcast with Carl Fortunato and a YouTube playlist called One Hit Wonders of the 70s. 
And inside of minutes, I'm listening to this endless stream of we had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. Yes, Afternoon Delight was there. So if I'm not improving as quickly on the podcast as I'd like to be, if I'm not quite there yet as a seasoned veteran host of such things, don't blame me. Blame Google Assistant, whom I can't fire. All right, thanks for letting me whine a little bit. Now we're going to get right to our great conversation with Alaudin Yula. But first, we have a sponsor. we got to go to the sponsor. Here's a word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right. The historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast. This is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think, I'd rather not have the breakfast? Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious... Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They're totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So, what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. It's good to talk to you. It's been a time. Yeah, it's um, good to see you after the pandemic. It's just good to see anybody in person. <laughs> you know what? The last time I saw you, I don't know if you remember this, but the last time I actually saw you in person was the last no-name anniversary show prior to oh, yeah, QED. lockdown. Yeah, that was a QED, good show. And that was like two weeks before lockdown. That was our last yeah. show at QED before yeah. pandemic. We had two more at Word Up and one more at Autos before the lockdown. So we haven't had an in-person anniversary show since then. We're kind of close to returning a bit at at least one or two venues, hopefully all of them. When we do, I kind of feel like I'd like to begin, I think, with or have one of our first shows be our 27th anniversary show, which we didn't get to have this year. Uh, No, 28th, because 29 is coming up in February. So like, all right, we got to make up for lost time. Anyway, so... First of all, how, how how were you spending pandemic? I know a little bit of this. Oh, man, I was in grad school at Columbia University. I was studying playwriting. The first year was great, but then in 2020, they pretty much shut down the school, and we were on Zoom, and I hated it. Oh, I, can't, I still can't stand Zoom. So I spent, like, the last year and a half just in Zoom finishing up my grad degree. Did you finish? Yeah, I just graduated. 
Oh, congratulations. And, yeah, and I, I spent the last year producing my solo play in Chicago, Hartford Stage, and the show was called Dishwasher Dreams, and I won a whole bunch of awards. So, you know, the hard work has been paying off. But it was weird because it was just like the end of 2021 and the spring of 2022. So it was still like kind of a pandemic. So it was weird because I was performing and everyone was in a mask. So it was weird because you feel like you're performing in a twilight zone because you can't see people. They're laughing, but all you see is eyes. It's like something out of a Rod Serling episode. And when you're on stage, you're so used to, you're trained as a comedian, like seeing the smiles, but it's weird. All you see is eyes. They're laughing, but all you see is eyes. It was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. I saw a couple of embryonic versions of that show. I I know one was at UCB. You had one at UCB, right? I developed it at the public theater. I think you were at that That downtown. That I knew, but I'm I'm not sure if I made the public. I've taken it like different places just developing it. How long ago did you start working on that? Wow, I started it, I think, like 14, 15 years ago. And I stopped and started, you know, different (laughs) things happened. Yeah. And uh, like really like the last three to four years, I really made a commitment to just get it out there and produce it. And fortunately, when I got to Columbia's um, theater program, I really like finished it and was able to, you know, put it out there to different theaters. And the Writers Theater in Chicago picked it up and then Hartford Stage picked it up. And now I'm in negotiations for other theaters, you know, in uh, California and a few others. I've taken it, you know, all over. I think You've earned some frequent flyer miles. It's, it's weird because, you know, we're, we're of another generation when you're over 40. <laughs> you remember the times of just sort of like doing it, grinding and, you know, going through clubs and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But now through social media, it's gone global. So I'm still adjusting to this social media world. I'm still learning how to promote. I've gotten gigs through social media, and it really helps to get a following and even to get everything from audience. Yeah, you got to know how to work it now. Yeah, it's like look at us. We got a podcast now. Yeah, you know, know, back in the day, we used to just hand out flyers. You know, go on subway (laughs) stations. Come come to our show. Come to our show. I got to tell you, I have on my refrigerator at home. I have this flyer that I found while cleaning up. Apparently, it was something that I whipped up to entice people to come to an early no-name show, and the flyer actually says, I am here because Eric Vetter gave me this flyer, and it, like, gives you $5 yeah, off or something I mean, like if that. You, if you think about it, we, in the, especially in the 90s, we were on the forefront because you were doing no-name. I was doing Colorblind at Don't Tell Mama, and then later at the New Yorker Poets Cafe, and we were grinding. We would go to Kinko's, Put four up on the page, copy them, then cut it twice, and then you have like a thousand mm. flyers. Then you go to like 14th Street, 42nd Street, you know, during rush hour. Come see our show. Come see our show. Mm. Then and you- God bless Kinko's 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, right. You want to get to meet some of the most interesting people in New York in those days. Go to Kinko's at 2 a.m. You see a whole different New York because you see all the artists. You know, I've met other musicians and people who uh, who were at the time doing their own shows. And they mm-hmm. would go there and promote. So all the artists were like cutting their flyers at Kinko's. Yeah. So there and was a were- subculture there at Kinko's of, of artists that were just promoting their shows. Of artists? Of artists? Unhinged people? And and, <laughs> yeah. and and homeless people who found a creative way to hang out all night. But you you would never think that like that era of like you know artists doing their own flyers and self promotion, it's sort of like morphed into this world of TikTok and Facebook and Twitter where 
there are now comedians and musicians and singers who they just like post stuff. Yeah. And then they become popular and they get a following. Some of them don't even have agents or people. We used to like think, oh, if we just get an agent, we'll get it like Boston Comedy Club and the comic strip. Now, like, you know, we came from the era like we were really the trailblazers of like (laughs) self-producing. From what I understand, I think Mel Watkins in New York Times said I was the first comedian that got an article in the New York Times by a self-produced show. You it wasn't what? at a comedy club. It was comedians I by comedians. That. You're so, talking about colorblind, right? Yeah, and the thing is, I was frustrated in the 90s because I just graduated from high school, and I was like, why do we have to sit at a bar for six, seven years to get on at 8 o'clock? This bullshit philosophy, like, oh, you got to pay your dues and wait, you know, six, seven years. I felt like I was as good, if not funnier, than some of the headliners. So then I got a bunch of my friends... You had Common Bases at midnight, which was the best open mic in New York. The <laughs> well, best. First of all, thank you. Secondly, it wasn't an open mic, and I always no, no, wrestled when we're, people... It's where we went to work out, and you had an audience. It was a workout room. This is what I feel like. I can toot my own home. Yeah. What I liked about our generation of comedians, we weren't waiting for like the clubs to put us up. We got our own rooms. We booked our own thing. And we said, you know, we're not going to wait. Let's just self-produce our own shows. I wish I had flyers because I had guys like Jim Gaffigan and Leanne Lord and everyone was down. Everyone was yeah. like, sure. That was actually the precursor to what later became acknowledged by others as the alt comedy scene. But we Yeah, I hated that word we alternative. Were, yeah, yeah, why everyone I hated, hated that, that term. Everyone hated that, but the New York Times and, and, and New Yorker needed something to call it. So uh they, they created that. I wanna go back because I want to talk about how you landed there, because first of all You've had a career that I find kind of fascinating. But that aside, talk to me about coming up in New York. Oh, man. Well, you know, my entire family's from Bangladesh. So I was the youngest. I was. You were born here, right? I was the only one in my, my family that was born in, in, in New thought. York. So for me, I feel like New York is in my blood. You know, you know when you know when you travel, like when you first start doing comedy and you go out to other places and it's quiet and you go to like their pizzeria, like in Ohio, like, hey man, <laughs> let me let me get some let me get some extra mushrooms, um, let me get some green peppers and pull out the onions, give me some extra cheese. And the guy's like, Why are you rushing? There's no one else here in this pizzeria. <laughs> Cause you're so used to like that cadence, you, you gotta know. Gotta keep it moving, keep yeah, it moving. And you yeah. realize how much of a native New Yorker you are. So, you know, when I was really young, I used to get teased and bullied because my parents, you know, were Muslim. I was raised Muslim. Mm-hmm. So I used to get, like, annihilated. And then I had friends. And where were you? I was in East Harlem. You know, I always made the joke, you know, I come from the only Bangladeshi family in Spanish Harlem. It's like being the only Amish guy at a rap concert. My mom <laughs> would come in kindergarten wearing a sari and, you know, we were like a fish out of water. We were like the Adams family of the hood. I would get teased a lot. And then I had friends in first and second grade who kind of taught me how to snap, like how to be quick. And so when kids would make fun of me, I would have like rehearsed comebacks like, hey, you ain't half the man your mama is. And then I realized I started having my own snaps and I started, you know, just being naturally funny. You're talking like first, second grade? Yeah, a little later, second, third grade. And then those guys ended up being into hip hop. And then I sort of accidentally entered in this world of hip hop (laughs) by like fourth and fifth grade. And by like the late 70s, early 80s, 
I felt like hip hop was like the language of the streets. Mm -hmm. So I came up at a time where it was do it yourself. If you were a break dancer, you couldn't afford to go to a club. You break dance outside. If you're a graffiti artist, you know, MoMA's not going to put your artwork in the museum. We would just tag on trains. If you yeah. were a rapper, you'd rap outside. So I came up in an era where arts was about like just do it yourself. Are, are you like me? Because I know, I know you've played some basketball. Basketball is in my blood. Some of my fondest high school memories are of like, like I spent yeah. just about every waking hour playing basketball this park in the Bronx. And as the day was wearing on, getting ready for the lights to go down, the guys came out with their yeah. turntables, the speakers plugged in, and we had a soundtrack for the rest of our games yeah. until the dark. Don't you miss? Because now it's got just certain, something neighborhoods got gentrified. But I love like in the summer. You would hear the bounce of the basketball. Mm. You would hear paddle ball. And then you would hear loud music and everyone walking around with boom boxes. Mm -hmm. We're native New Yorkers of a certain age. They're not boom boxes. They're just boxes. All right? <laughs> yeah, boxes. Yeah. You know, somebody yeah, else what kind of box you got? That. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in my mid-20s before I heard the phrase boom, boom box. Do you remember, like, especially like in the late 70s, early 80s, these brothers would have these boxes that were humongous. When I was a little kid, I would say, how is he carrying that? They were massive, man. Man, Radio Rahim came out of something real. So. <laughs> there was a guy in my building where the boombox was so big, like when he would go in the elevator, he'd be the only one that could fit the elevator. He's like, excuse me, man, excuse me. Wow. He would be like, don't touch it. The speakers yeah, yeah. were massive. How did he get it around his neck and carry it? Uh, you know, there's a section in my solo show where I talk about old school New York. And I remember when I lived in East Harlem, a whole bunch of us would gather our pennies together and we would go on the subway to Times Square to watch the Bruce Lee films because they'd have a marathon and they had every, you could right. see them for like $2. Features, you see yeah. Enter the Dragon, Return the Dragon, Bitch Slap the Dragon, etc., etc. <laughs> it was like, we were so desensitized because it was like porn, like for Three Avenues, but we were just there to see Bruce Lee. Yeah, you, you didn't think twice about it. I was like, oh, well, those are just porn and movie theaters. You didn't think, it was peep shows. The funniest is they had the peep show, right? But right next to it was the fake ID store. No one thought, duh, why is their fake ID store. That's what I loved about New York. Like everyone was just so desensitized and indifferent about. It. But it you, like, yeah. you know what? Too, there was you're talking about going down to see the Bruce Lee films or whatever. There was a time when that was a very specific rite of passage when you were old enough to either be allowed to go down to Forty Second yeah. on your own or bold enough to just go anyway. Yeah, those are like teenage years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are teenage years. Exactly. And so, all right, so, so now, now you're the different one in school. You, you, you're learning how to defend yourself. With, the with, comedy, with became the comedy became like, the weapon. Comedy became the weapon. Did you have an idea of, of, of going into comedy from that at all? I no. Mean, that's real young. No, because the thing is, no one, I didn't know anyone. I didn't, um, I didn't know anyone that was in show business. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it never entered my mind. Right. So when I graduated from high school, I really didn't have any, I, I knew I didn't want to go back to college. So I got a summer job. And then when I got the summer job, I was like, eh, all right, I'll go, I'll go back to college. And I went to School of Visual Arts and I had a professor. Oh, man. This professor said, you know, you don't do any work. You're just really funny. You're great. At imp you do impressions of me. Why don't you? Why don't you do open mics? And I was like, "What's an open mic?" And get out of my classroom yeah. with those imitations, right? So, <laughs> so he said, "You know, on Eddie Murphy's album, he told me on Eddie Murphy's album, there's one of the clubs. He he taped his uh, special at 
the, the comic, comic strip. strip. So I my, was there. Oh, you were there at the taping? Yeah, I went there with, with my friends Jerry Craft, now a very successful uh, uh, graphic novelist, and my friend uh, Janine Carter, a wonderful singer. And uh, we were there. I, I To this day, I, I can pick out my friend Janine's laugh. It's not an obnoxious laugh. Wow. It's kind of high-pitched. And yeah, we we were there, and that that was that was awesome. Cause you know, cause Eddie was our age, man. It's like, you know, he was, yeah, he was he was only a couple. He of years was already old. the king. He was like nineteen at the time. We so, were like nineteen. And so 20. yeah, so by like the late eighties, I called up the comic. I literally I called up a comic strip, and they said, well, if you want to be a comedian, you can come to our open mics, and we come that by. Was when and, they had the lottery, and, and they had Friday. the lottery, and yeah. for like three months in a row, I couldn't get a number. But I kept on going back, and I kept on going back. And I met people on that line. I met Billy Wade. I met all of these. Howard Dingle was on one of those lines. So that line kind of like was sort of like where you would meet people who were doing, you know, open mics. And I didn't know. And I remember Billy said, you know, brother, you shouldn't come here. You should go to open mics first. I'd never performed before. So the first time. So the first time I was ever on stage is when I got a lottery number. And um, I went back the next month. And I never forget this. I smoked the joint. I was so nervous. I forgot my stop. I ended up on 59th Street. <laughs> I had to go back and take the train to 77th. And I was so nervous that when I went up there, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go on at 8 o'clock. They must have bumped me like to the very end. And I went on like at 1230. Oh, damn. And Even even for a lottery night, that, that was kind of bad. That was kinda yeah. Rough. And so um, I couldn't finish the set. I, I was so nervous. I just stopped. And I walked out. And I never forget this. Mike Sweeney ran out. Sweeney, who later wrote for Conan O'Brien. Right. And Sweeney saw that I was really young. He said, hey, kid, how old are you? I said, I'm 17. I just graduated from high school. And uh, I'm in college. I'm going to be 18 soon because my birthday was in July. Mm -hmm. So he said, look, you never come here. This is where you get a good five minutes. Why don't you do the open mics? Go to Eagle Tavern. Go to these different places. Eagle Tavern. Man. So Mike, so back. so Mike Sweeney was the first person to tell me, "This is how you do it." Mm-hmm. And so then you know, and I, those people are so he didn't have to do he, he didn't have to do that right. But it, it, and and the way I, I don't want to be too broad, but you know, it, I, I won't say the way most comics. Let's just say a lot of comics are just not wired to be that sensitive or whatever yeah, but like you know it, it, we need those guys you know and women or whatever but you know who will will recognize like oh you, you need to know a little something you know i can't i can't make it happen for you but i can t- you know give you a little insight on how to find and it and i think the thing that sweeney like what he was encouraging me is that it isn't just enough to be funny he said you know this is a craft you've got to really study it and just you know you need more stage time and you really need to understand, like, this is a craft. It's not you just you just get up and just be wing it and be funny. There is a, there's an art and a method to it. And so, you know, I had to, you know, I, I, I took Andre and Tim's uh, comedy oh. class. And they, they were some shysters, man. They were some hustlers. Oh, but, but, man, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, I got stage time. And then, you know, I met different people. And then I went to this other guy, Stephen Rosenfield's comedy class, yeah, and I yeah. met Jim Gaffigan. And and um, there was an evening where we did a show for Mary Tyler Moore at the Improv, and Ga- oh, wow. and Gaffigan was um, hosting. Like when when she was preparing the variety show, this was like I, I don't know what she was doing, but 
she just you know was there and she wanted to see the young comics and so they it was put probably in prep for for the variety show you know uh Letterman and, and Michael Keaton wound up in, in that cast yeah this so is, they were they were scouring for the stand so what happened so what happened is um I did all this stuff about my mom and I did impressions of my mom mm -hmm. and then um I remember she spoke to me and she said you know you're really funny. How long have you been doing it? I said, not long, almost two years. And I, I told her, it's frustrating because I'm not making any money. I'm going from job to job and my mom really hates this. Mm -hmm. She wants me to finish college and I don't want to go to college. I want to keep doing comedy. She put her hand on my shoulder and she says, if you love this, you just got to outwork everybody. Nice. Just keep grinding and keep working. And, so, and I kept on saying like 10 times, because I was at like, at that point I was burnt out because I didn't, at, at two years into it, I was grinding every night doing open mics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she was like, just keep doing it. And the fact that this was Mary Tyler Moore, I was like yeah. floating when I, the old improv on 44th Street oh, is man, gone yeah. now. That's how old yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. But I remember going on the train home, I was like, wow, Mary Tyler Moore. So that was funny. But now, uh, it, it, forgive me for interrupting, but it, like that's a great story. But I also remember I've heard you tell a story, and I'm, I'm blanking on on who the comic was. But I remember you, you talking about some comic that pulled you aside after you'd gotten off of stage, uh, one of your earlier times on stage, and gave you advice about how to craft a particular joke. You know what I'm talking about? There were a couple of comedians that well, did that. I, I'm but, thinking but about what, the, the what, joke about the the the, the food product. The scrambled eggs. Oh, microwaveable scrambled eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Who was that? That that was. Well, what happened is Paul Mooney saw me. Mooney, yeah, and, I knew it was a heavyweight. And, and he and I had asked him, "Can you just look at my stuff?" And he gave me like one of the dirtiest looks. <laughs> and and he says, he says, you know, how much are you writing a day? And I said, you know, I'm not sure how to write. I was like, what am I writing? And he said. You got to condense your setup and race to the punchlines. And I'm like, but I have a hard time with punchlines. Write 20 punchlines a day. Mm. And I was like, Mr. Mooney, a day? He's like, yes. <laughs> and he said, because for God's sakes, you don't have an ending. Because the, the joke was, I remember this. I remember this so well. It's one of the first punchlines I ever wrote. I said, you know, I went to this because I had my own apartment. And it was the first time I lived on my own. And I, was, I wasn't used to shopping for myself. Mm -hmm. I used to shop for my mother. My mother would give me a list. So spoiled I was. And I would just get whatever my mom told me. So I was like, oh, there's an item that caught my eye, microwaveable scrambled eggs. And I would tell the audience, microwaveable scrambled eggs, microwaveable scrambled eggs. And Paul Mooney says, God damn it, why don't you write an ending? And I said, <laughs> I don't know the ending for that. He said, be more self-deprecating. He told me, watch Rodney Dangerfield. Watch oh, Henny Youngman. Okay. And I remember what I did is I saw Rodney Dangerfield. One of the funniest jokes ever written is him going to see Dr. Vinnie Boombots. And he says, hey, Doc, give it to me straight. Well, Rodney, you only got six months to live. He says, oh, but, but Doc, can I get a second opinion? He said, yeah, you're ugly too. And what I learned was like, oh, you can make fun of yourself. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I, I, I got the whole album. And I was, I went back to write my material and on an open mic, like the following day, I wrote, I went to the supermarket and there was an item that caught my eye, microwaveable scrambled eggs. You got to be one lazy, procrastinating, worthless human being to buy microwaveable scrambled eggs. So I bought them <laughs> and bam, the audience laughed. I'm like, oh, misdirection. Oh, there's a set of <laughs> right, punchline. Right. And I ran to see Paul Mooney because he was at, um, 
I think he was at Caroline's. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mr. Mooney, Mr. Mooney, I got it. He said, good. Now get out my face and write 10 more minutes of that. Nice. That's what you got to do. And don't be lazy and outwork everyone. Mm-hmm. That was a common thing that like Mary Tyler Moore, Paul Mooney, they were all saying it's like work, work. And I think people see us perform, but they don't see the freaking work. Oh, we no, got to do no. the, the crank out the joke, the setup, the timing, the nights that it bombs and you got to fix it and then rework and, it. And and honestly, I think that that's where, wasn't where No Name started, but I think that's where we found our place is that we became a place where... It was, the, it was a gym. Really, it was a workout room. Yeah. The people who were really serious about their craft, it, it, and it mattered less about what level they were at to me than... than the approach that the craft mattered and that they were always folks who were really working at it. And I think I, I, I love to this day, uh, one thing I love, like Charles McBee, you know, he's doing all these amazing things now. And Charles McBee will come to our show. Uh, he'll even come to the, the, the show we do at Word Up Bookshop in the Heights. And he will come up there before heading down to headline at Gotham or somewhere. And he'll come up with his notebook and he'll start out by addressing the audience and saying, all right, look, uh, a lot of this is going to suck. I'm just trying stuff out. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. You're taking one for the team so that someone else doesn't have to later on. (laughs) (laughs) Then it'll just launch in and it lets, you know, people know straight up what they're seeing and, and, you know, and what he's about. And they receive it differently you know, than they would if if he was just coming up there saying something, you know, I, I like that connection. I, I like identifying that. But so, all right, so so did did you outwork everybody? What, I, I know you had some well, really early success. Yeah, in my early 20s, I was just grinding. And then, you know, I think because I was working so hard that they just started inviting me to these TV showcases where they were looking for comedians. Did and, you get Comic View? Yeah, so when BET's Comic View, they were looking for comedians in New York, the old West End Gate. Oh, damn. I didn't they, know they did that there. Yeah, they were like... They, it was you know, that's like, where No Name started. Yeah, West End Gate, right. Yeah. yeah. So there must have been like, I don't know, 50 or 70 comedians in like a span oh, of two damn. days. And I think I was only one of three that was chosen. And That's... so that was how the first time I went, I went to L.A. Did, did you get on early? No, I went towards the end, and I think that's that, what... That's impressive, because it, when you see in 50, 60 comics, like, no matter how good you are, whoever's watching but you, you know, by the end has got to be a little but bit you know what, out. But you know what I learned? This is why I think stage time is so important. I was performing late night and open mic so much in New York right. that it didn't phase me. I was like, oh, I'm going on at one? Okay, great. So I knew, like, stage presence, command of audience, like, don't let them see you sweat, just crank out the work and have fun. And I would talk to the audience. So what I learned from the first time, the very first time I bombed to, you know, sort of maturing into a, a more polished performer is that if you if you really are comfortable in your own skin on stage, the audience will go with you. Even if you're a little nervous, I, and I find I like watching comedians work out because, mm-hmm. like, it, it makes me realize, oh, well, you know, we're all human. Like, I've seen Chappelle work out and stuff hasn't, yeah. ha- hasn't gone great. I've been at the comic strip and watched Chris Rock tank and enjoy it. And he'll just open up his notebook and say, okay, well, that shit ain't working. Right. And, like, right. the audience is laughing because they know it's, like, his, his, his lab where he's working. And, like, those are the comedians that aren't afraid of being vulnerable. Yeah. And one of the things that Paul Mooney told me about Richard Pryor that I never forgot 
He said that Richard Pryor would go up in the comedy store and do an hour. He said 55 minutes would be crap, but there'd be five minutes that were brilliant. Mm. And after a year, he'd have a new hour. Because you think about from like 69 to like 77, Richard Pryor was cranking out an album every year. Him and George Carlin, they were just coming up with so much material. And, you know, I never got the the great fortune to speak to Richard Pryor, but I spoke to Paul Mooney, who was his writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were cranking out material left and right. Yeah, and Pryor, they, Pryor didn't care about bombing. It was about the work. Like, I need what? to crank out new material. You know what? It's it, it funny for, for all the, the, the fame and accolades about, you know, Richard Pryor live in concert, Sunset Strip, all those films. I... I, I have mixed feelings. Uh, you know, it wasn't until uh, more recent years that I finally saw the the one that he didn't want to be released. It wasn't supposed to be a concert. Oh yeah, you know? live, uh, live uh, and smoking. Uh, still smoking. Where at the end he said, you know, this didn't this didn't turn out the way I thought it was going right, to be. Right, right. <laughs> and it's funny because he I have, bombed. <laughs> I had mixed feelings about having purchased that because I knew I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know that basically. He signed something that gave the guy yeah. the permission to film. Then he like he didn't know what he was gonna do with it, and he didn't want it released. Now I understand why he didn't want it now, that, released. But as as a performer, I'm so glad that I saw that because it humanizes him. Yeah. Like it's just it is nothing special about that night. It's just a night he's hanging out at the improv, as I recall. But yeah. it, but it's just he's just doing his work like everybody else. He's not the king of comedy. And then you see, like four years later in 1979, mm. those same bits are polished, and he's cranking Some them, them out. Some of them are, and, and the others have been left left yeah. aside, left in the cutting room but it, floor. Like, yeah, you get to see him not as Richard Pryor icon, but Richard Pryor, the working comic, just like everybody else. You yeah. know, and and the and the thing is, like, in, and there are no shortcuts. In, in Omit the Logic, which I think is on Showtime, is a documentary on Richard Pryor yeah, recently. Yeah. After he uh, burned himself, he came back and was so nervous that they have... Uh, Paul Mooney had talked about this. No one released it until Omit the Logic. The first two nights... Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first two nights, he oh, was not bombing. not classic film that everybody... He, bom- yeah. he bombed. So Omit the Logic, they have him in the in the middle of a set oh. he said you know i thought that i can perform but i can't do it me and patty want to thank you all for coming out and he puts right. the mic on the stand and he walks away and yeah. paul mooney like goes back and tells richard you got to do this you got to mm-hmm. do this mm-hmm. but it's it's i think it's a beautiful moment cuz you know we as comedians we've bombed we have people throw things mm-hmm. at us and when we see prior and carlin we see this greatness know, but we don't see those thing. nights that they right, bombing exactly. and you, you go oh wow product. like like there's no art like george carlin said there's no art like comedy cuz you need that audience but yeah. when you bomb you bomb big yeah, you know, in my opinion, musicians don't bomb the way comedians do because I mean, you're putting your ass out there on the line, and when you bomb, it's just annihilating. What the, the thing is, it, generally speaking, if you're a musician, I mean, unless you're doing the the solo singer songwriter kind of thing, you you at least have other musicians, even if you are the focus or whatever. But when when you bomb as a stand up, you're like, oh shit, I fucked and, up. And you know, I, look, you know, I bombed. Not I, not we didn't go well. Yeah, you know? I don't know what it is about a psych. I'm not a psychologist, but I've been on shows where they'll have a poet and a musician, mm-hmm. and the audience goes, ooh, that's a poet. Like, let's give it up. Snap, snap, snap. A musician. But when a comedian comes on stage, the audience just changes. I, I don't think that's funny. You yeah. think that's funny? Get off the stage. People just become different. 
when they like, see a comedian. That, the that, response that, is totally different. That musician different. Is, is Melody Challenge. He hit some notes that only he yeah. invented. And you cut him slack. I can't get the same and then, and then I think it was Bill Burr who said this. Like, when you see a musician and they're doing covers, you go, that's great. Like, as a comedian, we don't do covers. <laughs> right? Everything is original material, unless you're Carlos Mencia. Well, so you it's know. Like, it's like everything there are is, exceptions. Everything is original. And when you bomb, your, like, gut just, like, comes out of you. Yeah. So when you see Pryor and Carlin and those guys having a hard time, you realize that this is a process as a comedian. Yeah. And there's no, there is no school that trains you for exactly, those first couple of years exactly. where you're doing no open mics and struggling. Step. Yeah. You know? It's a so, necessary so, evil. You got to go through that. All right. So, so you ground it out. You, you, you land Comic View. Was that your first TV appearance? That was the first TV experience. And from there, I started, like, booking work. And I was able to, you know, sort of, like, survive as a comedian mm -hmm. and then where the big money was was colleges and i started doing a lot of colleges and i saw that there was a different audience in colleges that you know when you do clubs man clubs are brutal you go in the south and you deal with a lot of races go back to mm -hmm. your country i'm like yeah. i am from this country well go back to wherever you came from uh you want me to go back to 104th street so it was actually like, they did uh <laughs> yeah so but, but, it, it, all right, but, it, it, clubs, clubs and colleges were different. And I really, really like I loved working at colleges. And then at that time, like around 2000, I then started getting recruited to do voiceovers and commercials and film and TV. So it became like a natural progression. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, 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 you toured with Russell Peters at one point, didn't you? Yeah, there was a show we did called the. This is when like they had Kings of Comedy, Queens of Comedy. They had a, a tour called the Gurus of Comedy. It was a, it was it, like Indian comedians. And since me and Russell were the most popular at the time, I was hosting, and Russell was headlining. So, okay, okay. So yeah, we 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 toured and and we we done long that did show. You do that? We did that for a few months. It was cool. Where did you go? Uh, we went. It was mostly on the West Coast. Oh God! And I, you know, I love the West Coast because you know when it's snow time here, it's you know sunshine over there. So I always, I always find that surreal. Like you know, one part of the world is snowing, the other part of America, it's like ninety degrees. So I, I, and that also contributed to me being more visible and getting exposure to people who were you know doing independent films and mm -hmm. agents. So I started becoming more visible, uh, doing film and TV. The problem was is that I was getting cast to do stereotypical work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, geez, is there anything beyond the stereotype? And I realized this was the work that was in Hollywood. And I realized that if I wasn't going to write it, this was just the work that was out there. Right, right. And so I felt like I had hit a wall. Like I would be at auditions saying, well, you know, like I was at a Law & Order. Uh, I got the gig at Law & Order. And it was like it was a Bangladeshi cab driver with a turban. And the last name was S-I-N-G-H. And I just said, look, you know, most Bangladeshis are not Hindu, they're Muslim, and we don't wear turbans. And they're like, yeah, just do it with a Muslim accent. And so I did it with a Mexican accent. <laughs> and I say in the name of Allah, and, they, and I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> Me that essay in the Lord. So I was like, I, at that point, that so at that point, I was like, I'm out of here, man. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to explain to people in the industry that this is some racist shit. And so I realized, I realized, I gotta write. And that, no, no, no. one question now. Now, at the time you're you're wrestling with Hollywood, is this simultaneous when you start to self-produce, or is this after that? 
Well, I was self-producing shows in the 90s, and then, um, how can I say this? I felt that the other comedians were just not, how can I say it? I felt the other comedians were lazy. And I'm like, I'm doing all this work. And like now, when you talk lazy, you mean in terms of promotion and, and yeah, and and, and I was like, come on, guys, we got to do more PR. And I was doing all the work, I was doing this, and I just felt like, well, if I'm working for five other people, why don't I just work for myself? Mm-hmm. And I got with a manager who said, well, why are you still self-promoting when we can make a ton of money in colleges? Right. And so this is, I think, what oh, happened. Oh, so that was before you're doing the college circuit and before yeah, so, touring so, and so, all that. So right. it, went from, it went from self-producing to doing clubs to signing with a manager who said, you know, I can make, I can, we can make a lucrative amount doing colleges. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you do clubs, you make like 100, 200, 400, middler. Right. But you do a college, you're making two thousand dollars. Yeah. So you know, in two thousand, two thousand, and two thousand and one before nine eleven, I was in my twenties, going, I don't have to have a day job. I could tour, so it was it was a comfortable living. I wasn't a millionaire, but I was a thousandaire. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> so then I made the progression into film and TV. But the problem with film and TV is I was always playing a terrorist, a cab driver, and I was like, enough is enough, man. But I realized that I had to write my own way in like no one was gonna write for me so then i i saw ruben santiago at the public theater do lucawana blues and i was blown away how a person he was like richard Pryor. he was doing all these characters and he had a blues guitarist and i was like whatever he's doing i want to do so you know ruben became a sort of mentor and was like well you can do a solo show you just have to write it so that's how I got into the public theater, and I was part of the public theater's emerging writers group. And I really haven't looked back since. I've just been writing nonstop because I realized that maybe part of my career was sacrificed because I could have done those stereotypical roles, but I felt but I would have been. How far would that have led you? Yeah, and and to be honest, I have friends who've done that and they got typecast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just didn't want to do that. And I always make the joke: I've been poor this long. Another day is not going to hurt me. Uh, so I have this real bad problem. It's called integrity. Yeah. And, and in Hollywood, that's not and a good thing. That gets in the way. So I, I came... Oh, you know what? I, I, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I, there's something that, that you did, that, and I know I've heard you speak about uh, being very proud of, and I'm curious where this falls in the timeline. You mentioned doing some voiceover work. You also... Uh, it, there's a lot of voiceover work, yeah. Right, but there, there was one uh, project, Sita Sings the Blues, right? Sita Sings the Blues, and also there was one little small project that I did, which actually recently got all these awards and laws changed. Um, in like 1998 to like 2006, seven, I was doing a lot of voiceovers. Mm-hmm. I was the go-to guy. If you needed a South Asian accent, I was the guy. No so, Mexicans, huh? <laughs> I could do it, but I was just getting cast a lot <laughs> right, right. for South Asia. And so like it, um, in Sita Sings the Blues, it was a beautiful animated film mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they took the story of the Ramayana, which is a, a, a story about you know this, this Hindu folklore of this character Sita who was slut-shamed. And they sent her out into, like, the forest, never to be seen again. But what the director, Nina Paley, did is her interpretation was what if Nina, what if Sita comes back as a superhero and um, has all these powers and gets revenge? And that 
that animated film won all these awards. Yeah, I remember. And it, it inspired me because I thought, you know, there is hope that there is an audience that's craving something that's not stereotypical. And that took a long time to gain traction, that film. Yeah, it took a couple of years because there was some copyright issues because of the music. Um, but it, it became, a, it got a cult following, won all these independent awards. And then around the same time, uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumble did a story on um, camel jockeys from Bangladesh who were getting molested and assaulted. And I ended up doing two of the voiceovers. Oh, and okay. so I think a year ago or recently, the Prince of Jordan, who saw that, like, whatever, 12, 14, whatever years ago, when he became uh, king, he changed the law so that there's no longer children that are jockeys. It's all robotics. Oh, wow. So that one segment, you know, gained so much traction, it went viral, that it pressured the Saudi government to stop this exploitation of those kids. So I feel I had a little something to do with making some nice, kind of change. Very and nice. so I just feel like, you know, you got to celebrate the small victories as you do the big ones. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I prided a career where I wanted to really stand for something and not just do stereotypical bullshit. Yeah. So, you know, I, that's why I felt writing... And am, am, am I allowed to ask you about this? I, I believe I, I have heard a story from you a couple of times about... Uh, about walking out on on a project with a really high profile director, you don't have to. Oh yeah, share if yeah, you don't want yeah. to. I understand, but it's just, it was uh, a really big project. Yeah, you know, I mean, put it this way: you can leave out names and 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 the project, but you, you basically, it was well, the they, I had done this film called American Daisy, and they had sought me out because they liked the character that I played. I played the assistant professor who was South Asian. And he was funny, and they 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 wanted me to play this part. And I felt that the part was stereotypical. And you know what really broke my heart was that this director had done such great work. I was asking him, like, do you know any Muslims? Because no Muslims talk like this. Mm -hmm. This is so cliche and stereotypical. And he said, well, not really, but why don't you write it? And I don't know if he was being sarcastic with her, but I was like, yeah, I am going to write it. Uh -huh. And I never, I never turned back because I felt like it was important for me to stand up and say that this part just was was not, it just was so cliche. Yeah. It didn't have any dimension. It was just one note. And, and I it wasn't even accurate. Yeah, it was just really racist and stereotypical. And like, I, I, I even told them, I said, listen, you know, I have friends who are Jewish and Italian and like they get to really stretch and they're not doing the same thing. They're not playing Jewish characters. Of, what do you want? You're my sugar. You want to have a pastrami sandwich? It's like mm -hmm. there's depth to the roles. And I just, at that point, I was like, I'm just tired of doing South Asian, Muslim, Indian parts where I'm just a stereotype. I'm just, you know, a, a device in a plot that's just making people feel better about themselves by casting stones at a person who's Muslim. Right. Making them feel better about themselves while uh, feeling superior to others, you know. Yeah, and then, like, I even told the director, I said, listen, do you know any, I know Muslims that smoke weed and drink. I grew up playing basketball. Like, the way you, you're perceiving Muslims, like, we're like we're all terrorists. I was like, my mom is a Muslim. She doesn't even know how to freaking run the remote. So, <laughs> so like, there, I wanted to change the perception of how people saw South Asians and Muslims and Bengalis. Mm. I just thought like no one's gonna do it, so I mean I might as well take a stab at it and try it by writing myself into these parts. So is that when when the writing took precedence? Yeah, and, and then the same the same work ethic I took to stand up comedy is I took it into writing. I was like I want to learn the craft. I got into the public theater, and then I really wanted to learn from the masters, so I got into Columbia's 
um, theater program, and my mentor was Lynn Nottage, who mm, you know won yeah, two yeah. Pulitzers, and David Henry Wong and Paula oh, Vogel. Man, yeah. So I felt like I was learning from masters. And while I was there, I was able to take screenwriting and TV classes. So I was learning from Matt Williams, you know, who's the creator oh, yeah, of Home, yeah. of home Improvement. So I felt like I was learning about theater, film, and TV. So I felt the last three years, I was just learning the craft of writing. So as Alan Ivan said, you know, we talk about practice. I've just been, you know, learning the, the craft of writing and just uh, uh, using some of that work ethic that I had as a comedian mm. into the work ethic of being a writer. Yeah. And so it's been paying off. So, you know, my work is getting produced. And on top of that, I started directing documentaries. And this is like the do-it-yourself thing. Well, if no one's going to give us the opportunity, well, just get some cameramen and just start shooting. And I wanted to really do a documentary about how my dad came to Bangladesh. And that film is now entering a whole bunch of festivals. It'll be on PBS next year. Oh, nice. And I'm working on another documentary that starts in a couple months. So yeah. I've been keeping myself busy behind the camera mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of trying to put all my energy in being in front of the camera. Right. And you recently uh, had a, a new work premiere, did you not? Yeah, I had a, a, a play called The Accidental Feminist, which I am going to be I'm going to be playwriting resident at the public theater this year. Oh, so I'm going nice. to I'm going to be working on finishing that play. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm working on a bunch of plays, which, uh, you know, just hopefully by the end of this year, they'll be finished and produced. So, like, the way it works, which is what I, like, my professors have taught me, what Matt Williams said even to about TV, you have one project already produced. While that's being out there in the world, you have another project that you're working on. Right. And then another project bef behind that. And so, like, I look at Spike Lee as one of my heroes because when he graduated from NYU, he had a film out every year. Mm -hmm. But he said while he was in NYU... And he had one that, that that was supposed to come out that did not before Do the Right Thing came out. Yeah. I mean, I mean excuse me, I'm sorry, before She's Gotta Have It came yeah, out. Yeah, his thesis film was uh, Joe's... Uh, Bet's, uh, Joe's yeah, but in between that, and, and he had one that was supposed to uh, be... I think it was called Messenger. It was supposed to be about a bike messenger. Yeah, yeah. And everything fell apart on that. And he's like, all right, move on to the next and, one. And, you and know, he got that done. One of the things he said that when he was in grad school... He already had a vision for those 10 screenplays. Like, he knew what those stories were. Mm -hmm. And when I was in grad school in Columbia, I, I wrote pretty much seven scripts and plays. So I kind of know where those seven stories are going. So I feel like I have something to kind of finish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I got the solo show. I've got another play that's being produced. And I've got, like, five more that are being out there. And then I've got two documentaries and hopefully other projects that are on the horizon. So, like, instead of, like, trying to worry about how to get work as a comedian or getting work as an actor, we're in the conduit business as a comedian. We, we have to rely on a manager to give us work, an agent or a booking agent to get us into colleges and clubs. Mm -hmm. And if you're an actor, you need an agent and a casting director. Well, if you're a writer and a director, you create your own content. This is why I, I look at someone like Spike Lee as a role model because they're not waiting around for someone to give them work. They create the content, they're independent, and they wait for a distributor to pick up their, their film. Yeah. And that's the kind of career 
And that's the, the sort of direction that I want to go. And I see a younger generation using social media to create content. So I feel like the future is unlimited in what an artist can do now to get their work out into an audience. Whereas we had people, you know, blocking our vision. There are no obstacles if you really have your craft, you know, you're working on your craft and you know the project that you want to create. Well, uh, what do you, what's next up for you? Uh, what's next is my film In Search of Bengali Harlem is going to be in several uh, film festivals. Uh, Third Eye in San Francisco, Portland Film Fest, Seattle Film Fest, Boston Film Fest, and the big one here in New York in November, Doc NYC. Ah, and nice. then hopefully after that, we'll get a distributor. It looks like PBS is going to pick it up for next year. And we're still talking uh, negotiations for um, like global distribution. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully next year, I've waited almost a decade and a half. I've been dying to do this film about Sabu, who was the actor in the late 30s mm -hmm. and 40s, who was in uh, Jungle Book, um, Thief of Baghdad. And he really is the first South Asian superstar. But there's a generation, like, people have forgotten who he is. I was going to say, I know about him because my mom talked about... Yeah, like, we know about him, in, but you know. I feel like, you know, people know... But I don't really know him. I know who he was. And, but... and, and the reason why I think he's relevant is that, you know, we have a South Asian sort of renaissance with Mindy Kalin and Riz mm -hmm. Ahmed, and there's so many South Asian stars yeah. that, that are out there. And I feel like I was trailblazing that in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But no one has really acknowledged that Sabu was the real trailblazer he was the first so i really wanted to do a really an epic documentary on him and hopefully um you know knock on wood we, we start in january in in creating this documentary which is honoring his journey which is you know we, we're on the backs you know when ben kingsley won his oscar he says you know i i'm basically here you know as the custodian of many people before me like mm -hmm. sabu yeah. So I, I, I really can't wait to work on that project. Oh, man, that sounds exciting, man. Yeah. and Is then that I, you're directing? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be directing and producing that. And so, you know, I'm working on that. And then all of the plays I'll be developing while I'm uh, doing my, my residency at the public theater. So let me ask you this. Do you, do you miss stand-up at all? I do. I do. I You know, I secretly sometimes go out to open mics when no one knows me. And it's just I've even done, like, when I was in Chicago, I just would, like, go out and perform anonymously. And, You're not uh, still doing the, the the John Franco joke, are you? <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Wow, sorry. that's just a little, old, just that's a little an busting old of chops. But wow. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember that joke. You know, they're getting rid of the Metro card. I, I heard, I heard. I, I, it, my first thought was, was it? Well, that's the last nail in the coffin for that bit for Aladdin. Uh, yeah, I forgot how the, the where the joke was, but the joke was about how they created a new ad campaign with people like uh, Judd Hirsch. And John Franco. And, and uh, yeah, and Fade Downey Jr. Yeah. I, and the, I, and I remember that. I, <laughs> when you were starting to phase out of your, your active stand-up career, there was a point at which you were like, if, if you were coming through, I was like, okay, automated subway things, check. Metro card bit, check. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I yeah. Knew, because you, you were, you're, you had already started to, to channel your energies into dishwasher dreams and other sorts of yeah, projects solo or whatever. Show, yeah. So, you know, I and knew I'll, there I'll, was a transition coming. And but I'll, it was also, too, I think, um, like, I noticed in, in, in L.A. when I went out there, there were comedians who were writers and they weren't happy. 
And because they wanted to tell their stories, but they felt that they were in shackles, limited by what a showrunner was telling them. Mm. And, and one thing I learned, uh, that Warren Hutchison, who uh, uh, was one of the executive producers and really the brains behind like Moesha and the Bernie yeah. Mac show, he told me like, go back to New York and really learn how to tell stories and tell the story that you want to tell. And, and and Warren and I, you know, we shared uh, this thing in common because his dad was a black Muslim. And he's have jokes about being Islamic. And he mm. says, your story is really specific to you. And people are going to try and really stifle your vision and your voice. Yeah. But you want to tell stories. And I felt like I had the potential to make plays and films and TV shows. And I felt stand up was, you know, sort of limited in the sense that I was only in clubs and colleges. And I was still relying on someone to give me work and begging for someone to give me an HBO special or a Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And we worked 10 years to get an HBO special. And you're like, now what? Whereas, <laughs> whereas now, like, you know, we don't have, we don't, we don't need an HBO special. Hell, you can go on YouTube and get a million hits. I mean, this is why I think the game is completely changed. Yeah. And, and, and I think the, the dust, it's going to be a while before the dust settles because, because you've got all these new options and, Really, the the old school folks really don't know what to make out of it. They're trying to adjust, and 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 the younger folks don't really understand how the game is played. And everyone's trying to figure out how it's going to be played. And it's going to be a while before we really see how everything fits together, you know. And, and, and I do, to be honest, I I am rooting for some of these younger comedians and artists because I do love that na naivete because they're not jaded, they're not cynical. And sometimes you lose yourself in that bitterness and that jadedness because you lose that fire and that passion that you once had. Well, when you start to think that you can see what the parameters are, sometimes you start playing by what those parameters are, not always realizing that you can determine what the parameters are. You yeah. know, and you know, I've, I've, you know, I've mentored and give words of encouragement to comedians that have asked me when they first came to New York or started, like Harry Kondabalu and oh, and, and those cats. Love Harry. When they first started, I was always encouraging, like, you know, be yourself, find your voice. Don't worry, it's gonna be hard, but fucking love it. Just love what you do. It, you know, there may be two or three years where you don't have a job. You know, your mother's gonna tell you, "Is this why I came to America for you to do this?" And the thing is, I know what they've been through. And I, I just, I tell them, like, just love what you do. It'll get you through the rough times. And, you know, you may have to eat, you know, like, cheese sandwiches for, like, three years. But it's worth it, man. <laughs> get if to you know love. your craft Mac and yeah. cheese and your cup of noodles, man. Your and, ramen. And, and the thing is, like, as comedians, man, those dark times are rough. But the thing is, just know, like, Freddie Prince experienced it. Richard Pryor experienced it. That first year and two of developing, it's just... And you look back at it now, those are the magical years because you loved it. And you think it was rough and you think it was, you know, like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm never going to get out of this rut. But really, those are some of the most exciting times of, of stand-up because you, you're working without a net. You don't know where you're going as yeah. a comedian. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this before, before we wrap. Uh, and and uh, I, 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 wa I want to settle this because you're a name and <laughs> you're you're you've got all these projects and in a year or two, you'll be too big for me to ever speak to you again. No, no. So I want to get this, this, this done out of the way. Now, when I met you, when I first met you, um, back in the late 1950s, <laughs> I met you as a young comic named Aladdin. 
Now I know we've got different names coming on. on, I'm, on the the film art, I'm the artist formerly known as Aladdin. <laughs> right now, when well, when we see projects forthcoming from you, what name will will we be seeing? Will will we what? be seeing Aladdin Yula? Yeah, it'll be. And a, did I say that? Right? Yeah, I'm working on it. Aladdin. Here's here's why. Um, you know, my mom recently passed a couple of years I know, ago. I know. And my, my mom. So my mom always. She's been the butt of a lot of my stand-up stuff. <laughs> but my But my mom and and whenever I would do my mom, she your would first, always, your first voice impression. Yeah, she would always say <laughs> Aladdin. So my mom always felt offended that like people call me Aladdin. She used to say you right, should make right. people. But since kindergarten, people call me Aladdin. So I I didn't think twice about it. So yeah. so what happened is I went to finish my film in 2015. When I went to Bangladesh, I, I took a connecting flight at Saudi Arabia. And then I went another time. I took a connecting flight at Dubai. And each time when they would read my name, they would say Alauddin. I spent an entire lifetime in America, you know, <laughs> correcting people. Is it Ludin Alauddin? Is it Al? No, it's just Aladdin. So I just, you know, by default would say Aladdin. But right, right. when I was overseas, it just sounded beautiful. And then when I was in Bangladesh, it was like a spiritual awakening. It was like everyone was calling me Alauddin. Like your name is Alauddin. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be a director and I'm going to, you know, have my name and credits of something that I created, I wanted to honor my mom by mm -hmm. keeping the name that she named me, which is Alauddin. Yeah. So, if you know, old friends want to call me Aladdin. I'm okay with that. But as far as for how I'd like to be identified from this point moving forward is Alauddin. And I know that's not the funny answer, but it's like no, no, cause, no. Because my friend, I wanted the real my, answer, my man. friends, my friends make fun of me. Oh, you're like Lawrence Fishburne now. You're no longer Larry. You're like a big shot. <laughs> no, you. you <laughs> and, don't... It, and it's not a vanity thing. It's it's no, really no, no. It's, it's from my mom. I really wanted to, you know, have her be proud of the name and, that she gave and me. I want to honor you by calling you as you want to be called. But it's one of those things. You know what? I had no mental problem with with the change, but. I've only heard you called by that name while you were impersonating your mom, say, yeah, you know, yeah. angrily saying, Aladdin, Aladdin. And it's like, is that how it's really pronounced? Or is that just how his that, mom says it when, when she's that, mad? That, that's the, <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's the Bengali pronunciation. And, you know, yeah. I, I guess it took me to middle age to really acknowledge that, okay, that is the name. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, there's no trouble to ask people, uh, this is, to, you know, just correct them. And whereas before I was just like, well, you know, that's a Disney made up name. That isn't mm -hmm. that isn't the name that it actually is. The name isn't Aladdin. It really is Aladdin. That's the way you're, you're supposed to pronounce it. So so I, I will do my best to, to do that properly going forward and going forward. If folks want to follow you, if folks want to follow Aladdin Yula, and, and and all the amazing things that you're doing and what's coming up, where can they go? Uh, you can go to dishwasherdreams.com uh, for the next shows. I think I'll be at Old Globe in San Diego in 2023. And then the film is In Search of Bengali Harlem. You can go to B-E-N-G-A-L-I Harlem, H-A-R-L-E-M. That's bengaliharlem.org. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of information there. We actually have a book. The documentary, a whole bunch of stuff there. And um, you can actually uh, find me on Instagram and um, uh, Facebook and all the social media. I'm there. Awesomeness. Alaudin Yula, thank you so much for spending some time with it's us, It's been a pleasure.
man, it was good catching up with that guy, an old friend, and he knows more about no-name history than probably we'd like to have revealed in public. I'm so proud of him, too, you know, just as a friend and as somebody who's seen him grow and do all sorts of work that is <laughs> worlds away from where he started. It's just wonderful to see somebody, like, really pursuing their art like that. Be sure to keep an eye out for his documentary, Bengali Harlem, and all the other stuff he mentioned that we mentioned. And that's it. Our thanks to Alaudine Eula. We thank you guys for hanging out. We thank our producer, Gary Hardcastle, for doing his hard work. We thank Courtney Hill for the great opening and closing theme music. And we thank you guys for choosing to spend some time with us. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And, uh... By the way, if you guys hang out for a minute, when the episode ends, it's not really ended. It will be followed by some bonus content, some more talk, stories with Laudine, and some music. And uh, we hope you hang out. But remember, it's secret. It's bonus content. Anyway, thank you guys for playing with us. I love you all. My name is Eric Bennett. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out for our bonus content. We had a lot of fun talking with Alaudine. You know, even beyond what we put into the episode, we were kicking around some old anecdotes and memories from shows past. We thought we'd share one of his stories about a, a crazy night back at the old Common Basis Theater where No Name called home for a number of years. And after that, we've got a song from a CD that has a special place in our hearts. CDs, well, you can order it online, as most humans do nowadays. We lost a friend of ours some time back, Janine Liebert, who was a singer and a very dear friend. And, and she performed with the band a few times. And she died due to suicide a number of years ago. Her sister assembled an album, which the Summer Replacements participated in, they were designed to raise money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, and we thought we'd uh, include a song from there. It's called Little Town. It's by Skylar Wondrash. And if you like it, or if you want to support the project itself, you can go to www.lostbysuicide.com. That's www.lostbysuicide.com. And you can purchase this song or you can purchase the whole album, or you can even purchase a song from the Summer Replacements. We contributed a song to that album as well, and all proceeds go to support the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And also, just as a note, we are in October, if you're hearing this when we release it, and on Sunday, October 24th, I hope I have that date right, there is a walk to raise money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. To find out more about the walk and their work, you can reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention by going to afsp.org. So again, if you want to purchase music, you can go to lostbysuicide.com. If you want to find out about the foundation and their walk, or if you're not in New York and you want to find out where there's a walk happening near you, you can go to AFSP.org. So we're going to have a story from Aladdin and a song from Skylar Wondrash right after this message about Word Up Community Bookshop.
Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. They have a great selection of new and used books, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer-staffed. They also have programs for young people. There are artist events, author events. There are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them out at wordupbooks.com and support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. Whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. For a number of years, we were at a legendary, rundown, beloved little black box theater that no longer exists. Common Basis. The Common Basis Theater. Many, many stories. I'm going to ask you to just pick one. I think one of them was whatever play was in that theater, the set would remain there. Yeah, we came in after their play was done. And I remember what was great about your show, it was like Saturday at midnight. So you'd be there from like 12 to 3 and after you do your sets from other places, you come there and all of the comedians would be like, you know, there was a dressing room. And then sometimes we would converge and be like, well, who's in the audience? And I remember there were a bunch of kids. I don't know if they're runaways or whatever, <laughs> but there were kids who were like teenagers. They were in the audience and I think they were drinking or getting high. And one of them fell asleep <laughs> on the floor. And every comedian would go up and do this. It was like a dead body. And I got up there, and the guy, I think the guy woke up during my says, are you doing okay, man? And the guy was like, yeah, and he rolled over. Right, right. went back and to he sleep. He like kind of mumbled, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> and the rest of his friends were just like, oh, well, he's just sleeping. <laughs> and they didn't seem concerned at all. They were like, know? oh, well, you know, he may be overdosing on meth, but who knows? <laughs> so, so I was like, what kind of gig is this? <laughs> we just show up in this, you know, it could be a dead teenager right there on the stage. <laughs> that was one of the, the funniest nights because it was like, yeah, whatever. You know, it was just, th- those were the nights of those places. And then I think your sister used to make like little cupcakes oh, yeah. for and seven, cookies. For seven and a half years, my sister Jan baked fresh homemade baked goodies, at least two different kinds of things. For the first seven years, she never directly repeated any recipe once. <laughs> so it, it was amazing. It was it was the best reason to come to the show. It was like the best yeah. baked goodies in, in the world. Dragging me down, we're wandering round. 
this little town, not knowing where we're going, where chasing a dream, nobody's seen, and nobody knows when we'll ask, is this all there is to life? I gotta get out sometime of this little town of mine. Time, this little town of mine. Alright, I hope you enjoyed our bonus content for this episode, and we thank you for hanging out. Once again, you can purchase music from lostbysuicide.com, or you can support the foundation and the walkathon by going to AFSP.org. My name is Eric Vetter. Thanks for hanging out.